The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. In this episode, we dive into the topic of preparing for and getting through pregnancy. We go deep with naturopath Jennifer Ward, who opens up about how she prepared for pregnancy and about her experience in all trimesters of pregnancy and birth. We discuss the benefits of taking 12 months to prepare for pregnancy instead of the commonly recommended three months. Why should we care so much about periconception health? Jennifer chats about how she prepared for baby, including her lifestyle, diet, minimizing chemical exposures, exercise, supplements, stress management, and other tips. She talks about how she included her partner in pregnancy planning and preparation for the birth of their child. A little bit about Jennifer Ward. She is a senior naturopath and owner of Hauser Health, is trained in herbal medicine, nutritional medicine, health and lifestyle coaching, and is currently completing a master's of reproductive medicine. Her passion lies in reproductive health. The journey to becoming a first-time mother is an exciting and often overwhelming time, and Jennifer provides support and guidance through the journey from deciding to start trying to all the way into the fourth trimester. She works with each patient and their healthcare team, including GPs, midwives, obstetricians, doulas, and acupuncturists. Jennifer's journey to naturopathic fertility care began when she started to plan for her first child, Lily. Through her own positive experience, she was able to better understand the journey to motherhood each step of the way, which she is now fortunate to pass on to her patients. Her journey inspired further studies into reproductive medicine, which is assisting her to bridge the gap between the world of medicine and alternative therapies. Jennifer finds it most rewarding when her patients speak positively about their pregnancy experience and carry on that vitality into the fourth trimester and beyond. I hope you enjoy our chat. Jennifer Ward, thank you for joining me this this Sunday. Thank you for having me. It's a lovely Sunday. We're over in Manly and got a nice view of um, people out enjoying the water. So oh, beautiful. nice day to be here with you. Now, uh, uh, you're, a con- you're a bastion of knowledge, so I'm glad you're on because um, there's lots to talk about. And on this episode, I actually wanted to go through your journey from, you know, from when you decided that I want to have a baby, how mm. you prepared for that, how you perhaps prepared your partner, and then mm. what you did in pregnancy. Um, for postpartum, we've talked about uh, having a completely different episode. Uh, we'll be focused on a book and that'll come up in the future. But for now, I just wanted to ask you, you know, there was a time when you decided that you wanted to try for a baby. What did that look like for you in terms of preparation? Great. Excellent. And I'm so, so passionate about this area of preconception. And for me, my own personal journey started a little earlier than what is conventionally known as the preconception window um, of three months I probably started looking at this 12 months um, before I wanted to try to conceive. And that's because within that 12-month period, we can have a look in our own time at any areas um, that we might want to work on or understand better. So for me, I looked at my hormones, at my progesterone levels, at my thyroid. I looked at any nutritional deficiencies so I could correct them within that time. And really notably here is your iodine, your iron, your vitamin D. They're important ones to look at. And within this time, I also looked at my diet and lifestyle. And, you know, within a 12-month time frame here, you're not out there rushing, making huge changes every day. You're more making little tweaks and changes in that time. So I was looking at ways I could improve my diet and fun ways. I was looking at ways that I could make my exercise routine a little bit more pregnancy safe so I could enjoy it during pregnancy as well. And really importantly to me, I was looking at meditation and mindfulness and how I can continue to integrate that 
into my routine to support me through through what my fertility journey may look like. So in that space time, it didn't actually feel too arduous. Um, There wasn't a sense of urgency. I enjoyed it. I connected with a range of health professionals and I really enjoyed that preconception timeframe. Yeah, I think 12 months is more ideal, isn't it? When you think about it, not the three months that people go on about. In three months, I mean, unless you have a completely clear bill of health and very knowledgeable of your cycle and ovulation, it's it's not enough time. You've got to fit so much into that window. And if someone has an imbalance, they, I mean, they, it's very hard to correct it within three months. And, and we did a, a workup, you said a hormone workup, you looked at a few things, mm-hmm. iodine, vitamin D. Was there anything there that came up for you that surprised you? Uh, one that surprised me was actually my vitamin D was quite adequate, which um, okay. usually when you treat people, their, their vitamin D is quite low. But in general, it was all fine. Actually, no, I lie. My iron was particularly low at that time, and that led me down a rabbit hole of looking at probiotic therapy to assist with iron absorption, and that really worked for me. That helped me to get my iron levels up during pregnancy. Tell me more about that. I've not heard of probiotic therapy. Mm, Yeah, and and I mean, I went in that direction and I looked at that out of pure necessity, really, because iron supplementation wasn't working for me. Mm. And there are two main probiotics. There's uh, lactoferrin and there's lactobacillus plantarum 299V, a particular strand. And in particular, the 299V, Uh, has been shown to increase the absorption of iron by up to about 50%. So I thought, why not? I'll give it a go. I use that alongside low-dose iron, and I noticed quite a dramatic shift in my iron levels over the next 12-month period. It wasn't a quick fix overnight, but it was the only thing that helped me to restore my iron levels. So you checked that you you weren't celiac, that you mm-hmm. you excluded malabsorption. Mm-hmm. You, you were you having That's heavy it. periods as a cause of iron, Look, iron deficiencies. The most common mm-hmm. reason for that in women is because of heavy periods or low, you know, food intake. Yes, yes, and and I mean this was a long stemming issue. So all of that had been looked over before. I did have a history of heavier than normal periods, but it didn't quite explain why they were so low for so long. And my inkling is actually that it was more related to my gut health. And at the time I had blasto, which is a parasite. And I feel like there was more of a connection in there, although it was never confirmed. Uh, so I'm glad that you found a good GP because I think that is really, really, really key um, in navigating this area, uh, especially mm-hmm. when you're yourself a health practitioner. Um, Absolutely. And and I think it's important to find someone in that preconception window because ideally you want someone who will know you and be able to support you through pregnancy and beyond and then, of course, your children's health as well. So were there any areas that you struggled with? So you mentioned exercise, diet. Yeah, look, I think in the preconception window uh, – There's a little bit less pressure than the pregnancy window. So I didn't struggle too much with it. I gave myself time. I knew what I was going to achieve and I set myself some goals, you know, every week, every month. So for me, it was quite an enjoyable time. The most challenging element to it was the iron deficiency. Mm. Um, But, you know, that's in part um, the reason I enjoyed it so much is because I did have that knowledge before I went into it and I did have the knowledge to know and understand what I needed to do and how much time I required. Um, Pregnancy was a different ballgame. I mean, there's so many variables. I had pregnancy nausea. I had uh, an an issue actually with pre-existing or or previous glandular fever that popped up in trimester two. So, you know, my my issues came later on in my Mm. journey. I love the fact that you enjoyed it, that you actually found that process of preparing your body for pregnancy enjoyable. You don't often hear women saying that. Yeah, yeah. And and look, I find that a lot of women in my practice 
do have that same attitude. They are really focused in on their health and they're really eager to learn and eager to do what they can. Uh, The only barrier I see with my patients is that when they haven't made that decision, when they haven't said to themselves, okay, I am going to have a child, I want to have a child, they're resistant to the conversation a little bit. And, um, you know, I'll always talk to women of childbearing age and say, what are your plans? And when are you thinking to start to try and conceive? And they often say, oh, in the future sometime. Um, So it sometimes can be hard to get them to start early enough. But then what I find is that for most women, they have this turning point and it's like a switch, a flick of a switch where they go, okay, I don't want a child. I don't want a child. And then all of a sudden they go, okay, I want a child and I want it now. So it's kind of convincing them in those earlier days, but it's important to start looking at these areas and important to start making some shifts and changes but it's not to say that you're going to fall pregnant tomorrow. <laughs> and how about your partner? How, did you prepare him? Did you have mm. an open discussion with him about your plans and what you wanted Absolutely. to do? Absolutely, because, I mean, it takes the two, in, in particularly in our situation, you know, we've, we've got two people involved, natural conception, and he was open to it. He has always been quite good with supplementation. If I put something in front of him, he'll take it. <laughs> so he was on a multivitamin and he was on a fish oil. But what I found was that he wasn't as open to testing and he wasn't as open to booking in an appointment with a GP, um, for example, whereas I was eager to, I loved the process, I loved doing pathology, finding out what's happening within my blood. And I think that stems from this this masculinity, you know, this this idea of you're taking away my masculinity when you question my sperm and when you question <laughs> my involvement. Yeah. And and that's so frustrating and I see it all the time and it needs to be overcome. Um, so it can be really challenging working with a partner or even with my patient's partners through the fertility journey. Yeah, I see the same. A lot of reluctance for testing because what if something mm. shows that my sperm count is low? Exactly. Exactly. It takes away all my masculinity <laughs> and I don't know what to do. <laughs> Why did you have him on a fish oil supplement? So fish oil is actually one of the main supplements I use through preconception pregnancy and postpartum. But for a male, it's primarily based um, on the fact that the sperm and particularly the head is high in DHA, which is a component of omega-3 in fish oil. So any man really who's wanting to try to conceive with their partner should ideally be having dietary intake or supplemental intake of a high quality fish oil. Yeah, I usually recommend that if if they're not eating at least two to three portions of fatty fish a week that they take a, a supplement of fish Great, oil. And absolutely. on the days when they do have that fatty fish, don't have the supplement if, you, if you're really into Great. it. Um, yeah. So how about your supplements? I'm curious about you, preconception in yeah. planning for a pregnancy. What does a naturopath take? Because I'm yeah. assuming your, your, your general health is pretty good. It looked like there was a bit of an issue with iron. You were obviously on some iron supplements, some probiotics. But what else were you taking? Mm-hmm. And it looks different for every person. So depending on how that woman comes into the practice um, or walks through anyone's door will depend on what supplements they'll take. For me, I took a pretty standard preconception routine and that's because I didn't have any issues with my blood sugar or my thyroid I knew I was ovulating so we need to consider all of that when building a supplement routine but some of the mainstays absolutely CoQ10 in that preconception window and really important to have that in the three-month lead-up, not as important to have that in the 12-month lead-up. So most of these supplements I do recommend from three months before. CoQ10 is in a range of studies now, um, particularly around IVF, showing that it can improve egg quality and egg size, which 
now they can have that lovely advantage of testing through IVF um, in more of a controlled environment. I also took a really good quality multivitamin that was specific for preconception and that had adequate amounts of iodine, activated folate, vitamin D, range of B vitamins, um, really everything you need to assist with neural tube development and closure to correct any nutritional deficiencies. And it also helps to support ovulation, methylation, a lot of these processes in our bodies. Um, I also took choline, and choline is a nutrient that's a little bit newer to the research, uh, but choline is also important for neural tube closure, uh, development and closure, and also important for cellular health, so the cellular membrane. Um, choline is found in eggs, so I also would look at a woman's egg intake and say, okay, well, if you're achieving two eggs a day, you might not need as much choline through supplementation. Uh, fish oil as well, so fish oil is really big in our households, and for a woman, fish oil is important for egg quality, cellular health again, implantation, and helps to support ovulation. Um, fish oil, I can't express how important that is through a woman's fertility journey because through pregnancy and postpartum, women are also exposed to risk of anxiety, depression, mental health. And fish oil has been shown to reduce uh, the chance of that occurring and particularly also in that postpartum period can reduce the chance of postpartum depression. So big one for that reason. Right, um, I didn't realise that bit about postpartum depression and for sure. Mm, mm. Absolutely huge, huge research there and also surrounding, uh, gosh, preeclampsia. Um, preterm pre birth also. as well was another one. Preterm birth, birth weight of the baby, there's so much research on it. And it can do so much for a woman, even the um, bug's brain development and retinal development. And there was a really good study I was reading um, showing that if you take really the DHA, but I would just say a good quality fish oil through pregnancy, that postpartum, say three years down the line, they tested the children's IQ coordination and it was improved if the mother had taken fish oil during pregnancy. So it's, it's pretty wild stuff what it can do. How much fish oil though as a supplement? Fish oil, you need around about, well, it depends what stage you're in. Um, if you're in preconception, I would say what's conventionally known as, you know, 1,000, 2,000 um, milligrams of fish oil equates, you want it to equate to around about three, four, five hundred milligrams of DHA. And then you're going to have about 800 to 1,000 milligrams of EPA, um, which may not make sense to everyone, but you want to focus on the EPA DHA. Now, that increases during pregnancy and particularly in the third trimester and then drops back down in that postpartum period. So the best thing to do is to speak with your health professional and get some guidance on the right dose and the right quality of fish oil. Excellent. Thank you for that. How about mm -hmm. um, chemicals? So you're preparing for pregnancy. We're going to have a separate episode, everyone, on makeup, etc. cetera. Uh, so we won't talk too much about makeup today, but just mm -hmm. generally, you know, chemical exposure. Women don't think about yeah. it too much, I don't think, nor do their partners. No. Can you give us some general advice there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is something that is actually becoming more in the spotlight um, today, which is, is good to see. Um, people are more aware of what they're putting in and on their bodies. And I think it's important to look at this in that 12-month window before conception. So what we want to do here is what I call a, a chemical stock take. And it's going around the house, in the laundry, in the kitchen, in your beauty cupboards, and just observing what products am I using, what's in the back of their label, do I need it, where this come from, just understanding. Because usually when I speak with my patients, they don't actually know what they're exposed to. They have to actually do that to get a greater understanding. 
And what we then want to do is understand, okay, what's in these products? So, you know, are they endocrine disrupting? Um, will they cause any issues around my fertility journey? So for me, I started that journey earlier and it's always a continual process of learning. So I suppose I would have say I would have tightened up that process and gone through again and understood, okay, did any chemical-like products sneak into my routine? And if so, let's make that swap. So what I did was actually contact the companies. Um, one in particular, which I love, is Edible Beauty. And so actually speaking with the brands and understanding what they put in their products, is it safe for pregnancy? And when you have that understanding and trust, uh, take some of the guesswork out. You know, you're not having to go and look up all these medical studies and data, try to navigate that. Um, so that's what I did. I made some additional changes within that time to a process I'd started a few years earlier. And it was fun. It was really fun to be able to find new products to use, new brands to use. And a lot of those products and brands I'm still using today. Any books uh, you could recommend on chemical exposure and minimising this preconception? Yeah, absolutely. There's a good book, podcast and website by Alex Stewart uh, called Low Tox Living. That's a really good resource. It gives you some general information. It doesn't get too specific about chemicals in products, but it will absolutely be a great first point port of call for anyone looking to reduce their chemical exposure. The other resource is the EWG, the Environmental Working Group. They have some really good and quite specific information on chemicals that may be found in products. Alex Stewart apparently has another book coming out in September. Oh, great. Mm, I think it's more on food. Yeah, she is. And her podcast is fantastic. Mm, She has some amazing people on there. Yeah, and she's really shedding a lot of light on chemicals. And I think she's been a huge player in directing people's attention to that area, particularly in preconception and pregnancy. How about... um, Tea consumption. I know you love your teas. Mm. Were there any <laughs> teas that you drank a lot of when you were trying to conceive? Mm. Gosh, um, nothing wild. I didn't um, go out of my way to drink more of one tea than another, um, but I certainly did consume tea. And I think people get a bit confused uh, around this area and what is safe and what isn't. Um, Generally, I just say if you're having one or two cups or something a day, then it's going to be 95% chance that it's fine. And we have a range of herbal teas we sell um, at our clinic, Hauser Health, that are all safe in pregnancy and preconception. So I was having those. We have a really nice She Glows tea, um, which is a nice hibiscus bit of cement, bit of cinnamon. It's nice cold. I would have that often cold. Um, I would go for your classics like a chamomile or a peppermint. But the main thing here is I didn't use them for preconception. I use them for enjoyment and relaxation. And I use them at a modest rate throughout preconception and pregnancy. And tell me, how did you track your ovulation? Mm-hmm. Yes, and this is such a booming area that I love, and I've just ordered myself a temp drop. Um, I think you're across the temp drop, Tash. No, not, not heard of the temp drop. I, I, I'm using the Myra Fertility Device, not because I'm trying to fall pregnant, but because I'm curious mm-hmm. about it. But what's, yes. what's this one you mentioned? It just goes to show how many there are now. So this yeah. one, I haven't used it yet, so I will give a review later. It Uh, tracks your temperature overnight. So you place it on your arm, go to sleep, and it tracks all that information to your smart device. Now, my only concern that I want to look into is the, um, gosh, electric electric magnetic, what do they call it? Electric EDMs? 
gosh, I'm, I'm losing it. But um, the, the effect of having that wearable on my arm overnight is my mm. only concern with it. Um, but I do want to give it a go. So that's something that's available now that wasn't available when I was in that preconception window. What I did was the old method of using a thermometer. And I would mm. check, check my temperature in the morning. First thing, wake up, check your temperature, record it down. Uh, that was one thing I did, but probably what I relied on more um, and what for me was easier to um, track was changes in cervical mucus. So noticing around the time of ovulation just before the cervical mucus changing to a stickier egg white consistency. And that was quite uh quite obvious for me to see, if not for all women. And I also noticed really subtle things like I would have some light breast tenderness after ovulation. I might get a spot or two on my skin. And these little shifts and changes helped me to identify around that time that I was ovulating. And then it was confirmed through the temperature tracking. So it's, it's quite enjoyable when you understand your ovulation, but it's quite daunting if you've never done it before. Um, you know, the temperature tracking and looking at cervical mucus, if you've never done that before, it, it can be quite full on. But these wearables um, certainly are the way of the future and I'm looking forward to exploring them more. So you didn't actually use um, the urine ovulation predictor kits? I never did. I actually never did. And I think it's because I was very confident in understanding my own ovulation. Mm. I, I didn't feel I needed to do that. And I also feel for some women, um, possibly myself included, it can add another layer of pressure um, when you are that cognizant of when ovulation is happening. Um, I gave myself, we gave ourselves time to conceive. So if, you know, it wasn't spot on one month, it didn't bother us. Um, we, we weren't racing to fall pregnant the first cycle. Mm. And um, would you consider urine predictor kits in the future if I said to you there are some really cool kind of devices out there? Absolutely. I mean, I'm open to all the technology and all the different ways because you get uh, an extra level of education, I suppose, when you're doing it yourself (laughs) for your own uh, preconception and pregnancy journey. And um, it actually surprises me that I didn't go down that path, but I suppose I didn't need it at that time. But I tell you, I'm not too far off uh, preconception for number two, so I'll have to um, chat with you about those (laughs) options. (laughs) So how many months did you track your temperature for? Was it six mm, months? Don't tell me it was a year. Really? No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) I mean, I, I tracked it for about three months, to be honest, and it was more a confirmation. I was pretty certain of when I was ovulating. It was very regular. I knew my signs. I knew my symptoms. I'd had my pathology done on day 21. I saw my progesterone. So for me, it was confirming. Um, so some people, they might actually want to do it for 12 months if they have irregular cycles and are unsure they're ovulating. They might actually want to track it and see that progress over the time. Um, for those that have a normal cycle, they're pretty sure they're ovulating, three to six months, I would say, is enough. Um, and, of course, continuing that through um, from when you try to conceive onwards. And where were you sticking that thermometer, Jen? Where were you putting it? Yes, that thermometer was an oral thermometer. So under the tongue, nicely tucked away at the back uh, for, gosh, about five, ten seconds. And, and that was it. That was done for the day. So first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, but you, you wouldn't mm. get out of the bed before you checked your temperature. Is that right? No, I would make sure that I wasn't uh, doing anything beforehand, didn't eat, didn't get up to go to the bathroom. It was just literally the first thing I would do. And I often say to patients, if you have an alarm clock, um, pop the thermometer on top of the alarm clock. So it's the first thing you think of when you wake up, check it nice and quickly, and then you're done for the day. I wonder if uh, electric blankets have any impact on 
morning temperatures. Mm. Mm. Yes, and, and there are a few things that will impact it if you're sick. Um, that will change it. Um, yes, I'm sure electric blankets and, and different influences. So it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, I do like to use that as well as the physical symptoms as well as pathology um, and also I suppose the strips as well to confirm ovulation so I wouldn't ever suggest to someone only do temperature tracking don't look at anything else and obviously you were doing exercise tell us what kind of exercise were you were doing when you were trying to conceive anything specific mm. During that time, I, yeah, I was quite into yoga and Pilates and I continued that on. Um, I was also into, actually, we were doing a lot of triathlons at that time. So I would have cut back slightly on some of the high intensity exercise. But it was funny, at the time, I had a bit of an issue with my heart rate when I ran and my heart rate would jump up quite high, about 180, 190, when I was doing a pretty standard 5K run. Um, so I was very conscious of that and its potential influence on pregnancy. So when I was trying to conceive, um, so past that preconception window and in that time where I was trying to conceive, I was conscious to slow down my running and particularly in that uh, luteal phase where I potentially could be pregnant. So I had to make some changes, cutting down on that running. I made sure that I wasn't doing hot yoga, just regular yoga, um, and just anything that would influence my heart rate going up too high, my temperature going up too high, and getting myself into, you know, obscure shapes at yoga, I tried to avoid in that luteal phase where I could be pregnant and perhaps pushed a little more in the follicular phase where I knew I wasn't pregnant. Um, so in the preconception phase, not too much changed. I was probably just conscious of not going too high intensity. And in that time until I conceived, um, I did certainly pull back a little bit. And then, of course, into pregnancy, um, absolutely can still exercise, but was more conscious not to run at a hard pace um, and do any hot yoga at all. So in the time that you found out you were pregnant, so between mm. that time and the ultrasound that would have confirmed an intrauterine pregnancy, a live mm. intrauterine pregnancy, what mm. was your approach to exercise during that time? I continued, and this is an area where women get so scared. They they often absolutely stop all exercise, and there will always be a time where that's relevant for a woman if they've got a certain condition, you know, who knows. But uh, for most women, you can exercise, um, and it's good to exercise. So lots of walking, um, lots of gentle yoga, um, maybe perhaps a little bit of Pilates, keeping it at a, a low uh, to medium intensity during that time. I wouldn't recommend people running off to F45 and doing really heated high-intensity classes. So for me, there wasn't too much I needed to change. I was just conscious of some of those risk factors. Yeah, I like the way that you um, mentioned low, medium and high intensity and then earlier you mentioned the phases of the cycle and then mm -hmm. incorporating a type of intensity depending on where you are in your cycle. That, um, and, and the other reason that's good to do is because a lot of women don't fully understand their cycle. Exactly. So when you bring in these concepts of follicular and luteal into an area that they are aware of, like exercise or diet, it helps them to comprehend what you're talking about because otherwise it can get so confusing when you throw a chart of our menstrual cycle in front of a woman who has no idea what it looks like and try to explain it from there. <laughs> and how about stress management? You mentioned earlier meditation. Was that your main form of stress management, apart from exercise maybe and sleep? Yeah. I mean, I always try to have a varied range of stress management activities, but meditation is something that I've always been drawn to and drawn back to because I think it's something that is 
quite challenging to maintain 24-7. So I'll always go in and out of uh, regular practice. So in the preconception phase, and I would suggest from 12 months uh, beforehand, I was engaging in pretty regular meditation in the mornings um, or evenings. I was doing my yoga practice, um, but I also relied heavily on uh, being out in nature and movement. I think they're really important for mental health. So a lot of outdoor cycling and running and swimming, um, but you know, even just walking can be very therapeutic in that area. And I think this is a real, really... Um, under-promoted area of preconception. I think women focus on diet, absolutely. Uh, I think they'll look at their exercise routine, but no one's really having the conversation with them about stress management. And what I always say to my patients is imagine down the line having a toddler at your feet 24-7. Are you going to be equipped in that moment to be able to manage your stress? And they go, oh, gosh, yeah, I hadn't thought that far ahead. So I say to them, let's build up your skills now so you've got those tools for when you really need it, when you've got quite a chaotic life. So building up those skills doesn't always have to look like a perfect meditation practice or going to yoga every day. And we created a blog, which I'll link through, um, called 100 Ways to Relax. And it's 100 examples Mm. from our patients that we've collected over time of different ways to relax. And it can be things like arts and craft, and it can be things like cooking and a face care routine, um, going for a walk. So it's very varied, and I get people to pull out to extract those recommendations that really sit with them. And I tell them, okay, Let's start incorporating one or two of these each week and see what sticks. So that stress management becomes part of who we are. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pull out that piano again. I haven't played for a while. Or I'm going to pull out my paints and do some watercolours. And it becomes actually a really enjoyable part of that preconception phase. I love that. Please share. Will do. I will do. It's a good one. I always find myself looking back at it. Now, you found out you're pregnant. Can you give us some tips? What do you do when you find out you're pregnant, (laughs) but you haven't had an ultrasound yet, so you're not really sure that if it's, you know, there's a little heartbeat there quite yet. Mm. What was it like for you that that time? I mean... Most of the time, it's just a whirlwind of emotions. It's really quite a challenging time for women and partners because it's the moment you're looking forward to. So you have this overwhelming sense of joy, but at the same time, it's coupled with this overriding sense of anxiety because most of us are aware of the miscarriage rates and most of us have a little bit of fear instilled in us on, you know, we should be doing all these things and shouldn't be eating this. And I think that fear often comes from a confusion of the information out there. Um, and even for me as a, as a health practitioner. So I would say that it was a very long few weeks until that uh, first scan. Um, And I just made sure within that time I was looking after myself. So I continued on with regular exercise. I continued to eat well in a safe manner. And I continued with meditation and stress reduction. And I think that was really key for me to be able to get through that time Um, without causing too much anxiety because it really helps to keep you grounded when you're looking after your health during those first weeks. And I think what also helped was having the right health professionals around me. So I knew I could visit my GP who I knew and trusted. I could, if I wanted to have, you know, acupuncture or see a psychologist. So having that healthcare team Um, around you and ready for you when you need it is important at any stage of the way through pregnancy um, when you need that extra support. 
So what else happened in the first trimester? The first trimester for me was quite, I mean, you know, of course, past those first couple of weeks to the first scan, it was quite enjoyable uh, up until around, I think, week 10 when I experienced true pregnancy nausea. Luckily, I didn't vomit, but the nausea was quite intense for me and I remembered quite a distinct change from eating my regular diet to only eating the white, oily, salty, terrible food that a lot of people crave at that time. And I didn't put too much pressure on myself to eat well because in those moments when you're feeling nauseous, I mean, you just need to get energy in. It's not really about worrying about micronutrients and even you know, you can focus a little bit on macros, but you just want to make yourself feel better. You don't want to lose too much weight if possible, and you just want to get through it. So I was eating chips and pasta. I mean, a lot of broth, actually, which is probably the healthiest thing I could take at that time. Um, but, gosh, it was it was hard. And I really, really take my hat off to those women who experience morning sickness for more than a couple of weeks who have it up to week 20 or through their pregnancy. Um, and, it, and it takes a toll both physically and emotionally because no one feels great when they're not able to eat the foods they want in the way they want. So that was a big part of my first trimester. I think the other part that was quite challenging was, this is all pre-COVID times, uh, was keeping it a secret for my friends when we were quite social. So there was a lot of anxiety around going out with friends who were having drinks and not asking for a drink or people questioning why you didn't have a drink. And, you know, if you felt unwell and you couldn't eat what they were eating, making the right excuses there. So it adds another layer of pressure during that time where your loved ones don't know and um, and you have to put in that extra effort to hide it from them. What did what, what would you recommend people do in that situation? Keep, keep away, um, you know, pretend like mm. we'll actually hold a drink and maybe take some sneaky but very small sips. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, I've had people give me a variety of, uh, of recommendations. Mm. And I think it's what feels comfortable for you at the time. I think the next time around, I'll be more open to telling my friends and loved ones because those that you tell that you are pregnant, those close friends you tell you're pregnant when you're before 12 weeks, are probably the ones you would tell if you had a pregnancy loss. Mm. Um, So I would feel a little bit more comfortable doing that the second time around. I think so... Um, you don't want to necessarily decrease your socialising too much because that's part of being healthy is seeing your friends and, and getting out. Um, I had one little trick where we were out one day, everyone likes margaritas, so I went up to the bar and I said to the bar staff, uh, when we all order some margaritas, I'm going to say mine without salt on the rim. And that means no alcohol in there. <laughs> I love so, that one. That's fantastic. <laughs> when he came over and he took our order and I said that, and then when he brought them out and he said, oh, whose is without the salt? No one knew. No one knew what was happening. <laughs> a margarita still looks like a margarita and had no alcohol in there. So that was a nice way to... Um, Deceive my friends who might have thought I was pregnant at the time. <laughs> Everyone listening. <laughs> That's a great little tip. Maybe there should be like a hundred ways to um, hide, yeah, your yeah, hide your pregnancy. There should be that list. That's yeah, a good one. but you're mm. right. You're definitely right about uh, not not keeping away from people and, and and actually still being social because that is part of being a healthy mm. human. Um, how about your second trimester? Yes, yes. The second trimester was actually my hardest. Um, Most women will have 
the second trimester is their easiest. But I actually had some issues with glandular fever um, reoccurring in the second trimester. They thought it might have been CMV, checked that, it wasn't. And it left me feeling uh, very, very lethargic. Um, And I'm a very active person in my role um, and physically as well. And that was hard. I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do. Um, I struggled with it mentally. I didn't allow myself to rest as much as I should have. I resisted it and it felt like it was never going to end. So I probably end up having about six to eight weeks of feeling like crap and, you know, feeling like it was just relentless. Um, So that was really challenging. And I think with things like glandular fever, people don't fully understand how much they can impact you because everyone's kind of had it or heard of it and um, perhaps had a milder version. Um, but when you have it in pregnancy, gosh, it it really wipes you out. So my second trimester, I still was able to eat well and meditate and take my supplements, but it was a real struggle for me to just go about my daily activities um, without feeling really fatigued and foggy in the head. So not the nicest experience, but luckily it's not a very common thing to happen during pregnancy. So other women don't have to worry too much about it. So were you sleeping a lot more? I mean, I should have been. I absolutely should have been sleeping during the day and taking naps. Uh, I suppose I might have gone to bed an hour earlier, but absolutely wasn't giving my body the rest that it needed at the time. Um, And that's something that I suppose I would change if it happened again. Um, But I think in pregnancy, you've just got to listen to your body. And if you need to rest, if you need to take a day off, if you need to cancel a social commitment on the occasion, do it because you've got to be able to tune in intuitively to understand, well, intuitively, but also physically to understand what your body needs in that time. And the best you can do is just give it that. So bring on third trimester. Mm, This was my favorite. This was actually so enjoyable for me. I loved the big belly. I loved the kicking and I felt good. So I was able to go back to long walks, some gentle yoga. I was eating really healthy, had no issue with the supplements. I thoroughly enjoyed every appointment that I had and learning along the way about um, what was happening with Bob's and me and, you know, all the measurements they would take. So I had a great time. I really did. I I have such fond memories. Um, it's a time also where you connect with more pregnant women and mothers and you start to kind of get a taste for what motherhood may look like through those connections. Um, so you learn a lot. It's also a time where I did... A lot more work on my breath and meditation and actually did a calm birth course during that time. And I can't recommend it enough. It really helps for the woman to understand how they can integrate the breath into their pregnancy and birth. But most importantly, I think it really helped my partner to feel he had a place in birth and what his role was. And I could see a a change in him after that date. And he had a sense of being empowered there forward, knowing what to do. Because I think a lot of the time, the partners just go, well, you know, what do I do? I'm useless. They're the one giving birth. So what's my place? What's my role in this third trimester and beyond? So you got him involved in the calm birth course, did you? He wanted to. Mm. He was... Absolutely. I mean, he surprised me many times through the whole fertility journey and he was open to meditation. We did a meditation course together in the second and third trimester. Um, He was happy to do calm birth and I think he really wanted to be involved. But a lot of the time, there's not those conversations, there's not those opportunities 
for the partner to really actively get involved. Um, and that was something that he thoroughly enjoyed, took a lot from, and I could see it in the birth. I could see him adapting some of the breathwork principles and um, suggestions I gave him into our experience. So tell us about the birth, Jen. Yeah, gosh, we're already at the birth. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, before we go to the birth, is there anything else you wanted to talk about throughout the pregnancy that you wanted to share? Um, Mine was pretty uncomplicated. I certainly had the issue in the second trimester, but I didn't have anemia in the end. I didn't have gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or any issues with the placenta. So I was fortunate enough to not have big worries in my journey. I was able to sit back and enjoy it. I was able to uh, use my knowledge to improve outcomes. And of course, there's a genetic component and perhaps a component of luck, but I truly do think preconception care from 12 months beforehand making sure your health is in order, you're doing as much as you can within that time, can really help to shape a woman's experience of pregnancy and beyond, really. So I was fortunate. I look back very fondly on my pregnancy and it makes me want to do it again, which is kind of what you want when you're going to have multiple kids. You don't want to have fear around the pregnancy journey. That's why preconception is just so important. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, good on you for for planning for 12 months. And uh, Mm. I think that's uh, a really big take-home message from this podcast. Um, So anyway, let's go into the birth. Birth, baby. (laughs) You you don't have to go into too much detail, but tell us about your your, 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 highlights and maybe lowlights if you want to share them. Of course, of course. And everyone's experience so different. Mine was a long labour and I'm talking 36 hours. As most um, first, first time labours are, oh, right? Gosh, here I am thinking, oh, I've got a little bit of pain. I'll all be over in a couple of hours. A couple of hours passes. Oh, I've got a bit more pain. It'll be over soon. And that went on and on and on. So resetting expectations and not thinking that you know what's going to happen or have any control, I think is quite important. But I actually had a doula through my pregnancy. Tell us about a doula. What's a doula? Yes. I chose to go through the public system, which is phenomenal. Um, But because of that, um, I decided I'll have a bit of extra support via a doula. And a doula is basically like um, the hippie version of a midwife. Hippie <laughs> like version that. of a midwife. <laughs> I like that. Because <laughs> somebody asked they, me the they, other day, what is a doula? And I struggled to kind of explain it. But now I know mm. it's a hippie version <laughs> of a midwife. People can kind of get their head around that. And it, they're there to help you and support you primarily through the birth. But, of course, that takes time. Um, they're there months before the birth, teaching you about ways to support yourself through it. Um, we used the TENS machine, which is a method of reducing pain through birth. Um, we used a lot of breathing techniques, um, different positions. So um, maybe a kind of way to say what they do is that they are a birth coach um, and postpartum support Um, And I certainly got a lot out of it um, in those months leading up to the birth and then postpartum having someone to come around, tell you you're doing a good job, give you some resources in in the comfort of your own home. So for the actual birth, I had them there with me in my home. And that was really nice. It was you gave her, you very gave at home? No, in the earlier hours. Oh, okay, yep, pregnancy. yep, I see. So we had a couple of hours on our own. Um, the contractions started the night before. I wasn't too concerned. They were very gentle. Uh, she came into the picture the next day, supported me during those few hours. And then I had the urge to go to the hospital 
Um, and I listened to my body and I listened to that urge. And so we went into the hospital and I actually instantly felt more comfortable in that setting. So it just goes to show what you may think you want isn't actually what you want on the day and that's okay. And so I got in the hospital, felt good. I thought, okay, I'm going to jump in the bath. It's all about the beautiful birthing suites, Royal North Shore was that, yes. And they had these beautiful large baths. So we filled it all the way up, got in, had a contraction, jumped straight out because heat was not my friend. Mm. So again, thought I was going to sit in the bath the whole time, maybe give birth in the bath. I spent about two seconds in there. (laughs) So, Mm. you know, you just got to not set expectations around what it's going to look like. From there onwards, it was very challenging. It was very physically demanding. And I pushed through probably more than I should have. I think that uh, I should have asked for intervention at an earlier stage, but hindsight always gives you these answers at the wrong time. And then ended up having an epidural, which was the best thing I could have done. And I never thought I was going to have it. Um, It's not something that I even researched enough, but it turned my experience at that time from one that was really challenging to one that was actually enjoyable. And maybe it was the drug speaking, but from then onwards, I enjoyed every moment until I gave birth. So that was probably about 30 hours in that I made that decision. Probably could have made it 10 hours earlier, but that's okay. That was my decision. And I gave birth at about 11 o'clock in the morning um, on June 10th. And I remember that very, very vividly and having my little Lily on my chest and watching her on Jeremy's chest. And it's just something you never forget. You know, all of that thought around what you've gone through is just out the door and you're just focusing on the bubs that you're holding for the first time. That would have been an um, amazing experience. What what did you feel when you first held your daughter? It's it's almost an unreal feeling. It's I couldn't really describe it. It's something you want for so long. And then you've got it, but you can't believe it. For me, that's how it felt. And it actually took a while, possibly a few days for it to all sink in. Mm. But at the time, I think you just feel an overwhelm of emotions and relief and joy and so much all in one. Did you cry? No, I didn't. (laughs) I thought I would, but I didn't. I think I was probably still a bit drugged up from the epidural, to be honest. Mm. But the beauty is that they let you spend hours straight after birth, if there's no complications, with your child. And that is just so therapeutic to have that space and time holding them against your chest and watching them move and navigate the nipple and... I think that's my possibly fondest memory is that they're not rushed away um, in most cases. You get that true bonding time and then you go, okay, I'm okay. Things are going to be okay. Now I can go on to the next steps. What do I need to do? So I think that that's a real strong point now of the medical community, that the hospitals, they, they really respect that. Um, deep need, I think, for that connection to occur in those early hours. So you mentioned that when you went into kind of labour, you had maybe some loose expectations of what you wanted. Did you actually have a formally written birth plan? <clears throat> birth plans are, are just, gosh, something I, I now don't like. I think that we at the time had some ideas on a piece of paper um, but we didn't have a formal strict earth plan and I think the ideas that I had on the paper may have misled the midwives into thinking that I 100% wanted a natural birth um, and perhaps if I didn't have 
um, some of those words on the paper, they would have recommended an epidural sooner. Um, you know, mm. things like I did the calm birth course, that's a good thing mm. to let the team know because they know you can use your breath. Mm. Um, things like, you know, partner to cut the cord. Um, those small general little pieces of information I think are important. But to try to control the situation, it's, I mean, it's near impossible. Um, the best thing to do is go into that situation um, educated and have a spokesperson for you, either your doula if they can go into the hospital or your partner and they voice um, your needs and desires at the appropriate time. You absolutely shouldn't be worrying about that stuff, um, but having someone there to voice your opinion at the time rather than writing it all down on paper and perhaps putting pressure um, on the, the medical team you have there. Of course, they will always tell you what needs to be done if there's any risk involved. But, yeah, so I, I, I had some loose ideas on paper, which I probably wouldn't do next time. Yeah, because I remember when I was doing obstetrics, the only people that ever really had a birth plan were the, were the women who were having a baby for the first time. Mm. But you'd rarely see it in uh, in women coming back a second time. So I just mm. thank you for sharing that. Um, mm. Jen, when does life begin, you think? This question really threw me. I thought, is this, is this trying to trick me? But I had a very <laughs> clear answer. I think that life begins at birth, but existence begins at conception. Oh, yeah, I love asking people that question because everyone answers mm. it differently and it mm. makes me think differently about things. Wow, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> and um, before I go into some other more personal questions around your inspirations and books, is there anything else you wanted to share and let our listeners know about in regards mm. to getting pregnant and getting through pregnancy? Mm. I think that just reiterating how important – preconception is because it's a time where we can improve the outcomes for the mother before, during, after, for subsequent pregnancies. It's a time that we can help to support a quicker time to conception through supporting ovulation, improving the uterine environment, removing risk factors. It's a time where we can improve the outcomes in utero and out for our child and it's a time where women can feel really empowered by what's happening around them because I often see women freaking out not knowing what's happening not having that understanding and feeling like they are being pushed through their pregnancy rather than making choices and enjoying the process so I really do believe in it and I think that for many women, their reproductive years of preconception pregnancy, interpartum preconception pregnancy, interpartum can spread five, ten years. So why not make it as enjoyable as possible and why not reduce some of those risk factors? I love it. I love the fact that you mm. brought joy into all of this. You brought that up a few times. Good. Thank you. Um, so, Jen, tell me, in your life so far, uh, which people have been your biggest inspirations? I've always drawn inspiration from thinkers, um, behavioural economics, um, philosophers, modern-day thinkers. So I would say people like Dan Ariely, who is – perhaps not overly um, known and recognised, who's a behavioural economist, really inspires me because he's looking at the way we make decisions, the way we change. And being a health practitioner, it's so relevant to understand the psychology behind change. So I listened to his podcast. I've seen him live once. He's very interesting to listen to. I think people like Tim Ferriss, who 
um, gosh, probably would have influenced me more in my 20s as a bit of a biohacker and looks at how we can optimise health and really goes deep into topics. I'm not sure what he's working on these days. Um, he really inspired me. But then there's people within my field like Leia Hechtman, who is one of the best-known uh, naturopaths when it comes to reproductive health. She's written textbooks. She's got a master's. She just does everything. And also Rhiannon Hardringham, who's from Fertile Ground in Melbourne. Um, I would say I draw a lot of inspiration from their work and their knowledge um, and that really does influence the way I practice and the approaches I take. So is Leia's uh, book one of your favourite books? It is. I mean, it's just, it sits on the side of my desk. I refer to it all the time. She's got two textbooks now that I own. She's got three in total, but two that I use. And it's the reference point. It's the Bible for reproductive medicine. I turn to it. I trust her knowledge and she, yes, I think provides it in a way that is easy to interpret and pass on to the patient when needed. So she's phenomenal what she does and what she has done for this industry. Yeah, I have to say I've, I've got a couple of her books in my practice as well, but I wouldn't use them as much as you do, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, just amazing. She, she is incredible and such a nice mm. woman too. Mm, she is. Any other books that you like that you could share with us so you probably got a bit of a few a few of tim ferris's books um i listened to his podcast actually mm. back in the day i don't think i ever bought one of his books but i did acknowledge them i i almost bought them a few times um the books that have really made an impact on me have usually been those that relate to mindfulness um, because i'm so passionate about that area and so interested to learn more um, the untethered soul is one of them and wherever you go there you are that's another good one um, but also from that economic standpoint um, the paradox of choice so again looking at how we make decisions and what influences that so I do like my behavioral economics type books but certainly mindfulness is um, important in my health journey yeah because you were a um, you studied uh, business didn't you or economics I did I studied economics and I certainly pushed in the way of humanities and behavioural economics. I didn't go down more the finance path, although I did study international business as well. And I think that's really influenced the way I practice because we do need to look at the way that people make choices and behaviour when we're looking at health. So people often say it's such an obscure shift, but it really is so closely knitted and and has again influenced the way I practice yeah I, I didn't study economics at school I really wish I had but you know you've given me some hot tips today so I'm Good. going to go off and, and, and look at Dan Ariali you said yes mm-hmm. excellent I'll send you through a couple of videos <laughs> thanks Jen <laughs> speak soon excellent thanks Tash I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Jennifer Ward. Tune in to the next episode when I chat with Jennifer about low-tox beauty in pregnancy. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help or inspire them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.